I had a seminary professor who told me that if we only ever hear the Bible calling out folks with whom we disagree, there's a pretty good chance we've created an idol. But that knowledge does not make it easier to read passages of scripture that reflect our own shortcomings. It actually reminds me of those funhouse mirrors I loved as a kid. You know, this one makes you look short, this one makes you look tall. Except while those mirrors fundamentally distort the truth, it feels like passages like this one simply magnify the parts of ourselves that we'd prefer not to see. And in those moments, boy, if it isn't easier to just get up and leave the carnival. But we are called to more than a comfortable faith. And so here is Jesus speaking to those confident of their own righteousness. I'm sure none of us know anybody like that. <laughs> and so Jesus tells the story of two men, one a leader in the faith community, someone who has devoted their life to religious study, someone who has read the scriptures and reflected deeply on what they mean, someone who, by his own admission, is trying to put that faith into practice. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, he tells God. And yet, somewhere in this life of piety, his faith has turned back within itself. It no longer calls him to further discernment and growth, but has instead become primarily a source of self-satisfaction. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers, he prays. It sounds cartoonish when you put it so bluntly, and then I glance at my Twitter feed, and boy, howdy do I got words for other people. These folks are being racist. These folks are being sexist. That senator, he isn't doing nearly enough to, do, to protect people's right to an abortion. And this mayor I know, he's expanding the police state, and he's absolutely gutting our education budget. And did you see those people on January 6th, the insurrectionists? It's terrible. And that fashion? One of them was in a horned helmet. How gauche. <laughs> I jest, but we're deluding ourselves if there isn't a kernel of truth there. I'd be surprised if there is anyone assembled here who hasn't had some thought like this go through their mind. Now, the point that Jesus is trying to make is not to flatten morality, to throw up our hands and say, well, everyone's a sinner, and simply let people commit evil by justification that none of our hands are clean. We are not all equally racist when some people are conspiring to steal voting rights. We are not all equally sexist when some people have been engaging in a decades-long campaign to violate people's bodily autonomy. This evil is not a mirage. When white supremacists try to violently overthrow the government, the faithful response is not to throw up our hands, shrug, and say, well, who among us hasn't done something bad? <laughs> Part of a life of faith is fighting for what matters and confronting the people who assault the values we cherish. But here's the crucial distinction. In Jesus' parable, the Pharisee is not in the public square. He's not making a proclamation. He's not confronting the ruling authorities to demand justice. He's simply in a moment of private prayer. And somewhere that admirable piety has retreated from its rightful place into his interior life. It's no longer about pursuing justice, but reassuring himself that he's on the right side of it. And so he ends his prayer, thank you that I am not like this tax collector. It's telling that Jesus uses the tax collector as an example in this story. Tax collectors pop up so frequently in the gospel, it can be easy to just 
think of him as synonymous with bad and breeze right past him. But what exactly is the tax collector's sin? Tax officials were employed by the ruling authorities to gather money from the people. And it is true that these taxes were steep and oppressive. Like all empires, Rome squeezed as much profit as it could from its provinces. People who generated more than enough wealth to live comfortably were instead living hand to mouth as they saw so much of what they made flow to line the pockets of people far wealthier than they. But here's the thing. The tax collector didn't set those taxes. He didn't decide what the oppressive rate would be. And while he likely lived more comfortably than the people from whom he took money, the money didn't go to him. He's not lining his pockets with the community's wealth, just doing his job, collecting the money, sending it back to Rome. The tax collector's sin is complicity. He participates in an unjust system. And this is the central failure of the Pharisee when he says, thank God that I am not like this tax collector. His conviction in his own goodness has rendered him unable to see how we all participate in unjust systems. And that's the moment where this parable begins to hit uncomfortably close to home. Because we here at Middle do a ton of legitimately amazing things. To speak more personally, I as a leader in this church do work about which I'm very proud. But the moment we become convinced that because of that work we no longer need to grow, that's the moment that we begin to betray the gospel. As a white person, it's not enough to say, I work for the anti-racist church. I serve Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Do you know her? <laughs> Absolutely incredible woman. And you know what? She thinks I'm pretty great. We've trained thousands of people to examine their own racial biases. That may all be true, but if it means that I stop examining my own whiteness, it is actually hindering my ability to become an accomplice in the work of racial justice. If it makes me unable to hear a black friend say, that thing you said really hurt. That good work has become a millstone hanging around my neck. It pushes me closer to becoming the person who shouts, follow black women, while quietly undermining a particular black woman in my own life. It's a practically a cliche in organizing spaces. You know, a white person who, having discovered the perniciousness of racism, still centers their own voice at a meeting. A man who tries to patiently explain to women why he finds feminist rhetoric off-putting, offering better ways to advocate equality. Helpful straight folks who lecture queer people about how embracing kink or non-monogamy impedes cultural acceptance. And the paradox of all of this is, it's precisely people who have put in work who are most vulnerable to this kind of behavior. The moment we decide that we've arrived is the moment we cease to travel further. So what's the antidote to this kind of moral paralysis? Well, Jesus offers that too. Always helpful, that Jesus. <laughs> All who exalt themselves will be humbled, he says, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? Well, here's what it's not. It's not a call to self-negation. It's not Jesus demanding self-flagellation, the kind of exaggerated condemnation for even minor offenses that mostly serves to reinforce just how committed we are to justice. That's actually not particularly helpful. 
For example, if I use the wrong pronouns for someone, it does not provide additional atonement to go on at length about how sorry I am, how deeply I understand the importance of correctly gendering people, to make fervent promises about how I'll never do it again. Far better to stop, correct myself, and move forward. Because true humility is fundamentally about honoring the ways that we are interconnected. It's about owning the harm we cause, yes. But even more important is continuing to live in relationship knowing that we will make mistakes, knowing that by our action and by our inaction, we will contribute to unjust systems, but resolving not to let a desire for perfection inhibit progress, while simultaneously resisting the tendency to think that by making progress, we have achieved per perfection. Tapenos, the Greek word that we translate here as humbled, literally refers to making one place in the ground level with the others. It's not about making ourselves low, as low as possible, deliberately diminishing our own worth as if that signifies a commitment to liberation. It's about knowing deep in our bones that we are not better than anyone else because all of us are sacred, wondrous, created in the image of the Holy One. By eradicating that gap between ourselves and others, we move into a place where we viscerally experience other people's pain as our own. The sin of the Pharisee in this parable is one of separation. By the conviction in his own righteousness, he's actually removed himself emotionally from his surroundings. By praying, thank God that I am not like the robbers, he distances himself from the world, including the people who are being robbed. Righteousness can become a protective cocoon. If I believe the right things about a broken world, I can absolve myself against truly feeling the places that it's breaking. If I have read all of James Baldwin but cannot sit amid Katrina Mateen's wails after police murdered her son, Jaheim McMillan, my reading is in vain. If I make art about the sacredness of trans siblings but I do not enter relationship with trans people, that art might as well be dust and ashes. If I have time to condemn politicians who legislate against abortion, but I do not have time to sit with my wife Erin when she tells me I'm just so scared that someone is going to steal my rights. I'm first and foremost a performer, not a partner. But it's easier for me to tell stories about what I've seen on the news than it is to name when I've let zeal for looking righteous get in the way of fully showing up. When I was younger, I was part of a group organizing a protest in response to the killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. We were talking over the action, planning what the artistic element would be, and the, some of the other folks in the planning group wanted to erect massive wooden crosses that we would carry through Union Square, marked with the names of the dead. And I was worried that by making the protest so overtly Christocentric, we would limit the size of the coalition that could be, you know, join our action. So I kept pushing back, suggesting other ideas I thought would be more strategic, until someone called out the fact that I wasn't listening. They weren't trying to plan the most strategic action. They were planning a demonstration that testified to the pain that they were suffering. In my push for inclusivity, I was shutting out the voices that in that moment mattered most, the folks sitting across the table. I'm still learning. Walking beside incredible black and Asian colleagues in ministry, there are always new lessons. 
and sometimes I get it wrong. But that's what it means to be in relationship. Progress, not perfection. The call to humility is terrifying because it asks us to be vulnerable. It moves us from protagonist to accomplice when in our heart of hearts, we would rather be in control. But something magical happens in that moment when we open ourselves to our neighbor's pain, to the tenderness of living. What we lose in control, we gain in connection. We find ourselves in the struggle not because it is the right thing to do, but because it becomes an overwhelming desire to alleviate the suffering of somebody that we love. We enter that thin space that Jackie described two weeks ago, a fragile but resilient hope that liberation is within our reach, paired to a conviction that we will only get there together. It's the fierce love that Jesus himself embodies when instead of praying, God, thank you that I am not like the robbers and the evildoers, he turns to the thief on the cross beside him and promises, today, you will be with me in paradise. A better world waits for us to put righteousness aside to enter relationship, roll up our sleeves, and enter the messy work of living. That's why I'm so excited about the opportunity in front of us as a community. By rebuilding our church, we're not just making a building. We're building the container to develop new ways of living. It is about the work that we will do within those walls, absolutely. But it's also about the spirit with which we do that work. The world has a lot of dogmatic places, yelling very loudly about what they believe is right, pointing to the people who violate that vision. I'm not saying that we won't ever do that here at Middle, because sometimes that's what the moment demands. But what truly sets my heart on fire is something that Middle is uniquely qualified to offer, a place that explores the work of justice beyond sloganeering and creates an environment for people to move through the conflict that inevitably arises in that work. A place that doesn't just confront oppressive systems, but tells the people harmed by those systems, and yes, those who cause harm, the promise that we affirm in baptism. You are not alone. You are sacred. You are loved. There's a place for you in this movement. Together, we can do something miraculous. But again, the humility that we embody in this approach isn't one that asks anyone to diminish themselves, to negate their self-worth. In fact, it asks of us the very opposite, to know exactly what we bring this movement and to offer those gifts joyfully. The prophet Isaiah has words about that kind of love. You will rebuild ancient ruins you will raise up the foundations of many generations. You will be called repairers of the breach, restorers of the streets to live in. I love you so much, Benal, and I know that we can do this together. Thank you.